out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. I'm with you for the next 30 minutes. As you know, we love a special guest this week. It's going to be the turn of the German composer Blixer Bargell from the Berlin bass band I Sturzen Neubauten to find out more about life, love, poetry. And also they have a new album that has just come out titled allies in alum so after a bit of uh, casual showbiz chat about this and that and all the other um yeah we started to talk about that favorite subject that's on everyone's lip the pandemic and uh, this is blixer talking about how many days he'd been in quarantine and uh, a little bit of explanation about that and then we get into the musical world that is his life anyway over to you blixer yeah i'm in quarantine for now 70 days this is my 70th day in quarantine Right. Was that because... Well, the word quarantine comes from the Italian quaranta. Yes. Meaning 40 days. 40 days is a time that uh, the Venice, the city of Venice, had to keep ships uh, in the harbor before they could leave the ship when they come from a, a region where there is a plague. That's where the word quarantine comes from. So uh, if it is Italian, then from, in my case, you would have to call it now set. Tantina. I am known of our offer. Today is the 70th day that right. I have not left the building. So look, talking of life. So um, it's been it's been a long time since your last studio album. Yep. You, and um, so just which is always kind of interesting before we get on to that. Is it possible just to give us a little bit of a background to your own kind of young years, your formative years, the teen years of when you were starting to develop an interest in music and your early influences? And, and... Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> my musical socialization starts somewhere in the 70s. Right. And uh, I went quite quick, very quick from Pink Floyd. And I'm talking, uh, you know, a sasa full of secrets uh, time Pink Floyd to uh, the German stuff of the times. My triumvirat in my formative years is definitely Neu, Kern and Kraftwerk. Right. That is my, that is my social, my musical upbringing. Yes. My socialization is in Krautrock. That's for sure. <clears throat> and uh, back in that time, it was absolutely utopian to become a musician or make a record. Uh, these things are uh, well, so far away in the, in the uh, impossibilities that I never thought that that would actually be ahead of me. And that is also the only thing that I really took from, uh, let's say, the, the punk revolution. Suddenly, there was a do-it-yourself ethos. You were suddenly able to do these things. You were able to become a musician. You were able to actually make a record. Yes, this is true. And that is... Uh, that, because stylistically, of course, uh, I wasn't uh, I wasn't that um, um, impressed by one, two, three, four. No, no, yeah. obviously. But did you 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 but did you... you know that did you know that when Damo Suzuki left Cannes and they were for I was out a singer, guess who called them and and uh, forwarded the idea that he should become the new singer? I don't know. John Lydon. Oh. 
John Lydon. Yes, interesting. Yeah, it would all make sense. So, were you yeah, grown up in? No, it would it make more sense if Mark Smith would have called, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would have been much nicer. But look, did you? You were grown up in? Were you grown up in Berlin at that stage? Yeah, that's Berlin. Yeah. So Berlin, for those who might not know it, was a sort of um, was obviously this island within this kind of communist state, yeah. and it was also the place. And correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure you will. Um, where if you didn't want to do national service, you had to do national service unless you were in Berlin. Is yeah. that correct? That is correct. And that in, in the four in the four power agreement between the the, uh, the Russians, the French, the English, and uh, and the Americans, uh, it was uh, fixed that Berlin becomes a demilitarized zone. Right. The the East gave a shit about that, <laughs> but the West and West didn't. We we, we had. The barracks of the uh, British, uh, the French, and the Americans here in West Berlin, but uh, any West Berliner uh, was not meant to go to the military. It was a demilitarized. So everybody in in West Germany that that wanted to avoid the national service would move to Berlin. Now. Yes, and what what actually you really you could go out at night or go to a disco in the in the seventies or something, and somebody was already with a filled out uh, subletting contract would approach you and say, "Could I?" Could you sign me for your, you know, sublet in your, in your flat, uh, so that I don't have to go to national service? Yes, but I would imagine. you can show that you actually live in Berlin by signing a sublet uh, contract to a to an apartment, and then, then you're out, then you're off the hook. I know, which is quite a good hook to be off, because there was quite a lot of people from the UK that I knew. My bro- my brother, my friend had a brother who was a bit older, and they went to Berlin and they found work very easy because they all worked on the military bases. So for four yeah. to five years, yeah. they all just yeah. went over to Berlin and yeah. just partied on and just said, you know, you've got to go there yeah. and do it. So the military bases were a huge kind of employment area. Yeah, yeah, they were, but. Uh, um... <clears throat> most most of them, the British, the British Army, and even more so secluded the French. You would never, you would never find anyone. Most of most of the uh, most of the West Berlin territories were off limits for them. Right. The only ones that you would occasionally see were American Americans, uh, who were heavily into drugs, and uh, all the all the drug uh, selling in in West Berlin was basically run by American GIs. Yes. They probably have very fond memories of that now, don't they? The good old days, as they call it. So when, when you hit the, de- the turn of the decade, which was quite an in, in, interesting decade, because we'd got Thatcher, there was Reagan, and you decided to be in a band. Did it sort of come together relatively smoothly? No, yeah, it was a very spontaneous thing. It, 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 somebody approached me and, and that was running a club, and uh, he had a slot for a band, and uh, he just approached me and asked me if, uh, if I would like to play and what it should be advertised. And then I said, Einstürz in the Neubau. And uh, then I looked in my, among my friends to put together that band. And uh, it was so spontaneous, I never really thought that this was going to last for months or a year or 40 years. It was just a, a sudden idea and... Uh, if somebody would have come again and asked me to play somewhere else, I would probably would have given it another name. Yes. And would ask a couple of other friends. But uh, that is that was it. It cemented itself 
around like 1983 when we signed the first recording contract with a lawyer in London named, named Kennedy for some bizarre, the biggest mistake we ever made. But uh, we signed that record contract and there it was cemented that we do exist as a band and that we will continue to exist as a band. Yes, I do believe there was another guy interviewed from, is it Scraping Fetus off the wheel? I think he was... Jim Serval, he was uh, partly responsible for that contact. Was he? He came to see us in Berlin and he told us he wanted to found his own record company so that he could release Neubauten. And then uh, we went to London, uh, uh, met him, and we went to three different record companies, Cherry Red, Mute, and Some Bizarre. Some Bizarre didn't even let us in. Right. Mute, Daniel was in a recording studio, and he wasn't in the office. So we left the record there, and he uh, came back to us two weeks later or something like that. And he was very keen on it. He would have done it, but it was too late, and we already had to make the deal with some bizarre. Right. What was your deal? It was a deal for, I don't know, perpetuity, uh, forever, the, these four records that we have made with them. Uh, right. And he's still, he's still not paying us. He's still selling the records. If we put a video from 1983 on YouTube, it will be taken down the next week because uh, he's interfering. Right. It's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? So then, you know, because during the, the that particular period, we had some very good gatekeepers in this country, especially like you had the NME, which was kind of a circulation of, yeah. I don't know, 100,000. But we also had the amazing John Peel as well. We're on the title of the NME, photographed by Anton Corbyn. Anton, we loved him with his work. So yeah. it, was, it was in those days, you could quickly get that kind of elevation, which was kind of essential for any alternative bands. And as a, as a pop kid fan, you know, we just loved sort of trying to find the next thing. So anything came out of New York, you'd like it, even if it was hideous. Yeah. And anything that came out of Germany, which is always a cool place, we also bought. So, you, you know, that, that sort of ability to get to a bigger audience very quickly was quite relatively straightforward then, wasn't it? Yes. Yes, sure, certainly. I mean, the NME made a sad, long decline and demise, I would say. It's a, but uh, at that time, yes, of course, that was a good, that was a good paper and a good source of uh, information. Yeah, it was. It was Chris Bone, Bieberkopf uh, was in, in the staff. Bieberkopf, the one that is now the what the chief at the Wire magazine. Is, uh, was uh, at the NME stuff back then, and he did all these interesting things, like traveling to, traveling to the People's Republic of China and writing about bands there. And uh, yeah, yes, and I, I seem to remember a review. I, that, forgotten, yeah. I remember a review. I think about uh, Bruce Springsteen saying, "I've seen, I've seen, I don't know, the future of music, and it's dead." After seeing Born in the USA tour, which was not good, but then there was also at that period, particular period, there was a huge amount of sort of uh, scenes that were kind of happening, and you had the sort of the mainstream sound, which was that Trevor Horn production. Then you had that alternative scene, and then you had bands that were coming through like Liebach and and bands like that. Did you? And there had been Cabaret Voltaire. Did you sort of particularly feel that you were instantly, you know, going to be put in a sort of a category with these other bands, which was on one level is probably quite handy because at least you got an audience quite quickly. No, I, I think we have been, no, I just, hard to say. I mean, the, the term industrial is used nowadays and it's misused a lot. 
it had, so, so to speak, it had a second career. When, it, when industrial as a term and music came out, it was, to me, completely fixed to Throbbing Gristle. Right. Throbbing Gristle, industrial records, and uh, Monte Casazza and other things that were associated with industrial records. But and then, it has, then it disappeared. And then it came back with all the might from the U.S., with Ministry and Nine Inch Nails, and suddenly all that was called industrial so the first time when we were categorized with that in the first wave, in the beginning of the 80s, I already felt uncomfortable because I thought, uh, this, this is not really my turn. Yes. And uh, when it came back, now people uh, call, we're still categorized in like whatever, iTunes, etc. It says an alt industrial, blah, blah, blah. Um, I feel even more uncomfortable in that category. <laughs> I, am, I, I already said you know, my, my, my musical upbringing, my musical socialization is very straight in the, in the canon of rock music. Yes. And I still feel most comfortable if it would just be called rock music. Yes. Well, I always remember Lemmy from Motorhead used to always come on stage saying, we're Motorhead and we play rock and roll. And I think he just wanted to say <laughs> that was it. Rock and roll, I would not say. I say rock. <laughs> rock and roll to me is Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry that's and not what we play no, I say rock music I, I think there's a famous saying uh, by Pete Townsend who said you know, the, the Rolling Stones they play rock and roll, we play rock it's the blues influence isn't it Yep, and that's quite a different thing so then you were obviously gone from sort of like um were you an anarchist back in those days, or the, the sort of the late 70s and early 80s, would you say? I'm still an anarchist. Which is a good thing to be. But then you suddenly found yourself, you know, within a few years, working with people like Nick Cave, The Bad Seeds, and uh, Mick Harvey. Did, you, did that sort of feel, looking back on it, like quite a, an amazing journey, that, that things happened so quickly? No, yeah, it's still several years. And, and, and I was playing with Nick Cave for almost 20 years, Yes, but then, you know... That makes a big share of my life. <laughs> a huge share of your life. I mean, that's, that's quite amazing. But did you, were you having to sort of learn very quickly so much going on? So you obviously weren't sort of able to sort of take much time to reflect and think, oh, what shall I do next? It was, it was like one thing after the other. I don't know about that. Yes. But at the same time, the band were bringing out a lot of albums during the 80s, and there was other people... I know there was... No. Neubauten has not released many albums. Nikkeif has released many albums. Neubauten has not released that many albums. Yeah. I, I can still count them on two hands. Well, that's quite a lot. Well, no, but in the 80s, you... 40 years? <laughs> years, 10 albums? I don't know if that's a lot. No, but your early years were particularly prolific. You know, the 80s. Collapse, Zeichnungspatienten und Halber Mensch, 5 auf deiner oben offenen Richterskala. Haus der Lüge, Tabula Rasa, uh, Silence is Sexy, uh, Perpetuum Mobile. The first five are in the 80s. The first five are in the 80s. That's yes, right. That's I know. why we had the record contract. 
But I was, I was saying, because with a lot of the bands that I've interviewed, they have a, they do have a five-year narrative. They get together, they sort of, they spend about twelve months getting something that sort of sounded a little bit more interesting than the normal band. John Peel would play it, then they would get a John Peel session. Then after that, they would get the first album. Then they would have the tricky second album. By then, tensions within the band were often finished. If anybody ever went to America, they'd come back and go, right, that's it, we split up. So so normally, five years seems to, from what I've experienced, that period of time that most bands will do their thing before thinking, we actually... We went I'm... on a bit longer, yeah. Pardon? We went on a bit longer, yeah. We went, I mean, this version of the band, which I called... 2.0, because there's a formative time before that where there's a big fluctuations. Um, that is one point. Yes. And then the 2.0 was going on throughout the whole Some Bizarre period. Uh, and one album after that. And then uh, then that band split, and uh, then we have Neubauten 3.0. And this version of the band, Neubauten 3.0, is the most productive and the most stable. You know, working together for 20 years, for more than 20 years like that. And we have released more records in that time than any of the versions before. That's where we have uh, made a lot of records in this time. Yes. Some of them public, some of them non-public, some of them only for our supporters. In this period of working that we just did, which we called Phase 4, we, we decided we're going to go to the recording studio for 100 days in a space of one year. And we made two albums and four singles that we sent out to the uh, supporters, not public. So we made four, four and a couple of other tracks that they had for downloads, and we have made two albums. So that is uh, productive for us. Absolutely. Is it the case then that you've got the dynamic within the, the, the band much more to your uh, satisfaction than what it was in the early years? In the early years, the music industry still existed. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the amount X that I would get from a record company in, like, say, 1990 to make the record cover I would get now from a record company to make the whole record. Yes. And that is the money that I cannot work with. Neubauten are still working. We are, we are technologically, we have always been on the forefront of everything. But uh, in, in the actual way of working, in the sense of that we go to a recording studio, that we have a, a sound engineer, that we do play all together standing in one room and we play in the same time. Yes. And we take one and take two and take 20 of the same idea is not different than the way the Beatles have worked. And it is some way of um, working that with the normal financing of the normal industry record thing, especially if you're a band that's just starting, you cannot get financed any longer. Yeah. That's why nowadays uh, all these things are connected. People are saying, well, they don't make money on records at all anymore. They, they have to go on tour and they have to sell merchandise. Otherwise, they can't, can't survive. That's why people canceling the release of their record now because they know they can't tour. Yeah, because I did an interview with a guy who's in, um, 
It's called Man Man. He's based in L.A. And he was he'd spent three years getting his new album together after loads of issues to do with the name of the band and personnel problems and lawyers. And thought, right, that's it. I'm going to do this particular release. But um, and said, as you just did, um, that there's no money in releasing the album. It was like a year of touring, which they got lined up. And suddenly, just on that almost week of it coming out, they had to literally pull the whole thing. And um, when I was doing the interview, he did look a bit like, I just have no idea what we're going to do now because everything about what the, the future of my life, career and the band was to do with this particular year, which has now been put on pause, the pause button, really. I mean, do you, I mean, how, how's that sort of, you were also sort of looking at sort of a, quite a major, majorly busy year. How's that affected, you know, your sort of finances or, or sort of like, yeah, we had we, we ran the phase four. The phase four is still running. It will be finished by the end of this month. Yeah. Then we're gonna probably gonna start an interim phase because we can't we wanted to do phase five working on the next record while doing the tour. And uh, since the tour is delayed, we'll probably have to put up an interim phase where we will uh, try out all kinds of way of remote working basically. Yes, through software and uh, and new techniques. I don't know how how that is going to turn out. We had literally for the end of phase four for the album release shortly before the album release. We had a show in Potsdam. We had a show in the uh, Konzerthaus am Gendarmenmarkt, which is a classical music venue. We had a bus tour with me as a tour guide uh, through the uh, Neubauten specific Berlin. Uh, we had a we rented the Meistersaal in Hansa Studios to have a listening session for our supporters. We had an art crawl and a party, and all these things. The basically the uh, price at the end of Phase Four has been have been cancelled. So we never we were never able to do the glorious end of the Phase Four as it was planned. Five hundred supporters from all around the world have bought their flight tickets, hotel reservations, etc., to come for these events. 500. And that is disastrous and really bitter. That we don't play the tour in 2020, that it escalated to 2021, okay, that's not nice, but I can't uh, repeat the end of phase four next year. No. So that has been taken from us. Yeah. And does that, um, I mean, talking to a few other artists who are, you know, in a similar situation of release and stuff and having plans, and then after years of thinking, God, what I really could do with is a bit of space and time just to sort of do some more work, and suddenly, hey, presto, sort of give, being given that, does that, has this, this particular person said they just haven't felt in a creative mood because actually it just hasn't, it doesn't... We have five minutes. Don't you think we should talk at least a little bit about the record? Yes, let's talk about the record. We have five minutes left for that. Okay. We haven't talked about the record at all. Let's talk about the record. Sorry. Yeah. The record. Yes, so do you want to um, explain the process and how it sort of came into fruition? Oh, yeah, the, the, the idea was... Uh, that we go to the studio for in the time of one year and uh, work for 100 days and see what comes out of it. If it's one record, two records, or no record at all. There was no other concept or there was no theme or, or other idea except uh, we're going to work. 
Yes. And did you find, or do you find with the creative process that there's a, do you have much of a plan beforehand or do you sort of come in and have any kind of spontaneous moments? I just wondered how, how that sort of worked. Well, with your... There's basically, <clears throat> apart from improvisation, they're basically two different uh, uh, types of um, <clears throat> songs on this record. I have a card system that I developed 20 years ago called Dave. Dave is named after the voice on one of my cars when I first had a navigation system. So we, we play with these cards in the sense that they are very, very Neubauten-specific. Right. They name the people... They name particular instruments, they name particular materials, and we usually play it like each one member takes a couple of cards, keeps them to himself, and finds an interpretation. Uh-huh. Then these pieces are called Dave. Dave yes. what, we did that 12 times. One time didn't work. So 11 pieces are called Dave. Some of them made it on the album. Some of them went on the singles that we sent out. Uh, that's one way. The other way is I write something, not, I mean, music, and I usually do that on the piano because that's the easiest thing for me to communicate this. I can't write it as well on a guitar as I can. So I write something on the piano, and usually I don't write it with the intention to have a piano in the piece. I just write it so that I can communicate what I want to do. So there are several pieces on the record that uh, that started as a cadence that I've written on a piano, Seven Screws, Tempelhof. None of them actually have a piano in the end version, but uh, they were originally written on a piano and then uh, they were developed from there. And a lot of the other pieces are based on, yeah, on that card system or just simply on uh, improvisation. Usually we do that when, when we actually have webcasts from the studio. So for our supporters, uh, they, part of what they get is webcasts. I mean, at a given time, Monday, 4 o'clock, they know they can tune in and they can watch us work. Yes. When we know there are 200 people that watch us working, then we make damn sure that we're not drinking tea and reading the newspaper, <laughs> but that we are actually in there working on something. Yes. We are lazy like everybody else. Yeah, and when uh, there's webcasts, yeah, everybody will be there and we will start developing, most of the time start developing a new piece. And... Uh, that is the main thing about the um, supporter system for us is it actually speeds up the process a bit. We can't give in to the laziness. We can't sit down and, and say, yeah, let, let Boris, the sound engineer, uh, work a bit and we do something. Else. No, we are actually working a bit faster and a bit, a bit more concentrated. The attention that we get helps. Yes. And, does, <clears throat> and, and did you say this is something that's been your way of working for the last 20 years? Yeah. And what was it like before that in your in your eight, say the eighties period? Yeah, we went through we went through lots of different periods from from uh, the, the the drawings of OT was really the exploration of uh, whatever else materials we can use. What else can we use after we have given up the drum set? Not just metal. What what, what other materials really lend themselves to to being explored? There's a lot of exploration phase, and then when we worked with Gareth Jones in the in the uh, later 80s, uh, it went much more into structural research, yes. and how to uh, how to actually work with song structures or against song structures. 
But since we invented crowdfunding in 2002, and my wife wrote the code for it, we built our own platform that was, of course, long before it was called crowdfunding. But since then, we work like that. And we have left the, like, in the late, in the time that we worked with Gareth, was the times before uh, samples were invented. You know, there was one piece of studio machinery that was very, very expensive, called an AMS, which had a button called lock-in. That was kind kind of like proto-sampling technology. You could lock in like one or two seconds or something. If you look back in the, uh, like, Flowers of Romance was done almost entirely with that lock-in function. Wow. Yeah. If you listen to that, the bass drum, as I remember, that's yeah. lock-in. You push the button, there's a bass drum. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah? <laughs> that, is, uh, that we did that in, in the uh, late 80s and 90s. We went in the beginning of times of samples. We played with samples. And we abandoned that later. Because I, I, found it, I just found it boring to sit in front of a screen with two other people that, you know, move, move little pieces from the left to the right. That's not my. That's not what I enjoy about being a musician. I enjoy the social process. So we went, we went back to the idea of all together in one room, and that's what we do have done ever since. We went there in like 1987. We we kind of abandoned the sample idea and uh, went back to the the actual playing of all together in one room, and uh, we still do that. And we still do it nowadays. We do it very very much with the idea in mind. How do you play it live? Everything we conceive, we ask that question, how to do it live. And that was me in conversation with musician Blixer Bargell talking about the new album that has just come out. Um, and then we were quickly interrupted because he had another interview. Anyway, thank you for listening. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. And also all these interviews have been archived and you can find those on Spotify iTunes and Podbean. Anyway, thank you. Have a great week.